This is one of the fascinating things about humor and comedy. You can't be scientific about it. The very fascination of it is partly for this reason, that around the edges it's a little vague. Comedian and original Tonight Show host Steve Allen. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, long before Jimmy Fallon, way before Jay Leno, before Johnny Carson, before Jack Parr, NBC's Tonight Show was hosted by its co-creator, Steve Allen. The National Broadcasting Company presents... Tonight, starring Steve Allen. Lee Gourmet, Pat Kirby, Andy Williams, Steve Lawrence, Skip Henderson, and Gene Rayburn. Tonight's special guest, the Calypso Eddie Singers... And George D. West. Now here he is, the star of our show, Steve Allen. In the fall of 1954, the 32-year-old comedian and entertainer became the host of TV's first late-night talk show. And thanks largely to Allen's comedy, which could be sharp and intelligent or broad and slapstick, The Tonight Show took off. Now, Steve Allen soon enough moved on to other ventures, but for years to come, he remained very popular and in demand. I first met him in early 1987, when he wrote a book he modestly called How to Be Funny. So get ready for some tips from the master of his craft. My 1987 interview with Steve Allen. The name of your book is How to Be Funny, but is that something that is easily learned? Can anyone pick up your book, read it, and be funny? Well, there's a sense in which a gift is a gift, and gifts are not bestowed on everyone uh, in equal force. Uh, There are millions of people playing the piano professionally, and even a larger number, I suppose, taking lessons, but an Oscar Peterson comes along very rarely. So I'm not suggesting that anyone, having read my book, How to Be Funny, can immediately challenge uh, Eddie Murphy or Richard Pryor or Donald Duck. But uh, my, my claims are more modest that reading the book will make whoever reads it funnier than he was when he started to read the book, which is something. And also, there's a separate audience addressed, and that is those who are seriously interested. Sounds like a contradiction in terms to be seriously interested in humor, but I should say perhaps professionally interested, those who want to either do comedy for a living or if they are lecturers or public speakers would like to be more amusing in that capacity. You mentioned somewhere in the book that that 90% of us could be funnier if we wanted to be? It's probably closer to 100 now that I hear the assertion. I think everyone has the capacity to... In fact, I argue that everyone already is funny to some extent. The only question is one of degree. If there is such a thing as a totally humorless person, I've never met such a person, and I doubt that uh, any such individual exists. We all have um, evolutionary equipment, which... uh, by means of which we smile. We have these facial muscles that lift the mouth, the corners of the mouth up, and that is called smiling. We know what laughter is, and we all have the the muscular and respiratory equipment by means of which to make that funny noise that we call laughing. So nature herself has uh, given us this ability, just as it's given us feet to walk with and, and hands to grab with and throw with and that sort of thing. So uh, another factor is that we do live, as the Christian theologians used to say, in a veil of tears. Life is really tough. They say war is hell, and so is life, as a matter of fact. Not every day, fortunately, and more for some folks than others, but life is difficult. So humor, it seems to me, is some sort of either a consciously intended divine gift, or perhaps more likely an evolutionary, evolutionarily developed gift by means of which we cope with the slings and arrows, as we say, 
and uh, since we all have it tough, <laughs> it therefore follows that we all have a need to laugh and to amuse ourselves and others. Why is it that I find you funny, but I also find Eddie Murphy funny, and I find W.C. Fields funny, and I find All in the Family funny? Well, that's just because you have good taste. <laughs> I find those other three uh, examples funny, too. How funny I am is, uh, I am is not for me to comment on. But um, I like about 90% of my professional peers. I laugh at them. That is to say, I don't think they're all equally funny. Uh, a good question would be, why don't I laugh at that other 10%? That, that's quite a mystery. Now, you might think, well, they're the least good, so you know, why should you laugh at them? But I cannot accept that, although I wish I could, because in that 10% are some of the big comedians in the business. And I just don't know why they never have struck me funny. Some of them I, I really don't think are, and I think the public has gotten a little dust thrown into size. Sometimes if a person is in a wonderfully funny play or a wonderfully funny comedy series with great writing and great production, there can be the illusion that he is funny. And uh, anyway, that's an endless debate. But uh, I think we do all have this uh, ability. And of course, uh, we don't have to just choose one comedian and laugh only at him or her. Uh, we should be uh, ideally laughing at all those who do this for a living, I suppose. Isn't it true that the more you try to analyze why something is funny, the less funny it becomes? There's a degree of truth to that. Uh, I was discussing this on The Tonight Show recently, and Patrick Duffy, who was the host that night, said, telling how jokes are constructed, which I do in the book, and revealing how a sketch is put together, revealing the tricks of the comedy trade, he said, isn't that a little like a magician revealing how he does his tricks. Now, once a magician shows you how he made that rabbit disappear, you may be fascinated for another reason, but you cannot be mystified again because you've been the mystery has been resolved for you. But I suggested that the analogy doesn't hold up because even after you've been told why something is funny and shown the moment of its funniness, you can still laugh at it. You see this sometimes when people are particularly fond of a given comedy performer, they may buy a comedy album of his, if he made one, or a comedy video or film. And if you really love W.C. Fields or Groucho or Mickey Mouse or whoever you laugh at, you can watch that film ten times. And you laugh each time and you say to your friends, wait a minute, watch, watch what happens now when he falls out the window. You know he's going to fall out the window. You've seen it nine times before, but you still laugh. So comedy is unlike magic in that regard. Magic is gone as magic once you show the behind-the-scenes workings. But you can tell how a joke was put together and still laugh at it. It seems like it's funny the second or third or fourth or tenth time around if there's somebody in the room with you for whom it's the first time. Yes, laughter is, among other mysterious things, a social exercise. We sometimes do laugh all by ourselves, you know, in a rowboat or in the shower alone. If some funny thought happens, happens to occur to us, we will chuckle. But you do laugh more, more often and more loudly. Uh, if you're in a social setting, either with one friend who shares your own kooky sense of humor, perhaps, or you're just sitting in a Broadway theater with 1,200 other people and you're out for a good time and you know it's written by Neil Simon, so you're likely to be amused, and all the social conditions and settings are conducive to laughter, you will laugh more in a social setting. It's also contagious, isn't it? I recall uh, one of my favorite clips of you on on, uh, on television was the, the, the Bill Allen sports show with the, the hair and the hat and, right. and looking at yourself in the monitor. Mm -hmm. And it's, it strikes me that the audience wasn't laughing so much at that, at that that you were laughing at, but they were laughing at you laughing at you. You're absolutely right about that. They were probably laughing at me laughing at me 90% and 10% of the jokes of the situation or the hat or the hair. Good evening, this is your old Indian sportscaster. 
Curtin, Bill Allen, bringing you, bringing you, how are you, the complete sports roundup in the world in sports for all you jerky sports out there in Sportsland. Well, what's new in sports? I'll tell you what's new. The 1958 ouch baseball season is getting in the way with the annual... <laughs> What they were laughing at was the fact that I totally lost control. Now, those things have happened to most of us at certain moments. You, you know, get thrown out of the choir because you can't stop giggling or whatever. We've all experienced that. But what makes my situation unique was that I was being watched by about 30 million people. We were on the air live. And there was no tape to stop. They hadn't invented tape, I think, at that point. And it was my embarrassment, sincere embarrassment, that was a part of the humor of that moment. After this short break, why do we laugh at inappropriate jokes? Now more of my 1987 interview with Steve Allen. Should you laugh at your own jokes? Red Skelton always laughs at his own jokes, and, and he's been criticized for that. But, boy, I love Red Skelton. <laughs> he's a great comedian, so there's no doubt about that point. I think it's better to leave the laughing to the audience, although I am another comedian who frequently is observed to laugh. But I only laugh after I have ad-libbed something. And the reason is I never heard that joke before either, and a second earlier I didn't know it was going to be born, you know. Just to suddenly two words uh, strike together in my mind and they make some kind of a comic spark. And if it all happens in the twinkling of an eye, uh, it strikes me funny. In fact, it, it, at the moment of the creation, I'm already laughing at it. So I guess that is justified. But most of the time when you see a comedian laughing, it's kind of a practiced professional shtick or gimmick he does consciously. Some comedians will flick a cigar after a joke, or others will raise or lower their eyebrows. In the old days of vaudeville, sometimes I used to notice this when I was a kid, because my mother and father were in vaudeville, and I'd sit out front and watch many comedians. And I noticed that some of them had the gimmick, which you still hear once in a great while. They get to the point of the joke. Let's suppose the end of the joke is, and the lady never bought another shower curtain. At this point, the audience should start laughing, and generally it does. But there's often a second and a half before they do, so the comedians do a throat-clearing business. And many English comedians of the old school used to do that. They go like this. Anyway, the lady never bought another shower curtain. <laughs> they kind of, it's a noise to suggest that you ought to make a noise like that, too. You ought to do something like laughing or chuckling. So there are those gimmicks, and uh, I think it would be better if they did not exist. What can you tell someone who wants to be funny, but they really admire Jonathan Winters Robin Williams, the people of lightning wit, and they say, I could never be like that. Well, the thing I tell them mainly is buy my book and then make up your mind. You never probably um, could be as funny as Robin Williams or uh, Jonathan Winters, but you, it's, this is not an either-or situation. We're not talking about you being uh, totally sober or hysterically funny. Very few of us, in fact, ever reach either extreme. What we're talking about is taking your natural ability to smile, to laugh, and to amuse others, and all of us do that at certain times. Either we tell some joke we heard down at the gas station or the, the dentist's office to others, and we make them laugh, or we think of some fresh funny thought. Generally, that happens with people who have known each other a long time because they share certain levels of communication, maybe members of a family or, or lifelong school friends or a husband or wife, something of that sort. 
So we all have that ability, I repeat. So, well, let me, in this case, make the analogy with the piano. I play the piano well enough to make a living at it. I've made a lot of albums, and I play jazz clubs and with symphony orchestras. So some people think I'm a good piano player. I put myself as a second rater, but that's okay. I have fun in it, and people buy my records. Now, why should I give it all up? Because I'm never going to be as good as Oscar Peterson or George Shearing. It would be silly. So if you're never going to be as funny as Robin Williams, who cares? Maybe nobody else is either. I don't think I am, at least not doing the kind of comedy they do. So the, the book will show you, or anyone, any professional comedy coach, a Mike Nichols, if you were in one of his plays that he directed, he could show you how to get funnier just by showing you tricks of the trade. And you mentioned a lot of those tricks of the trade. It seems to me that a lot of people make very common mistakes. They'll telegraph the punchline, mm-hmm. or they'll say, now wait, here comes the really funny part. Yes, instruction of all kinds, whether you're talking about moral instruction or <clears throat> how to become a dentist, how to play football, how to play bridge, always has uh, don'ts as well as do's. So there are definitely things that uh, people should not do if they are trying to amuse others. Sometimes they simply should never do them. Other times they shouldn't do them in certain social situations. Uh, if you're on, let's say, at 2 o'clock in the morning in Las Vegas and everybody in the audience is a drunk or a gambler or a rounder of some kind, it's not the worst uh, social offense in the world. If you tell some off-color stories, they probably want to hear that. Whether they should or not, I won't debate, but that they, would, they won't object to it. But by the same token, there are times when you should never do material of that sort. You certainly shouldn't do it at a Sunday school class or you know, a patriotic rally or whatever. So there's a little thing called common sense that you have to apply if you're a professional or amateur comedian, too, or, or a comic lecturer. And uh, you also, one of the points we stress in the book is to study your audience. You, you shouldn't really do exactly the same act everywhere you go. There should always be some modification. This applies to speakers, too. If an audience is entirely conservative, that's one thing. If they're entirely liberal, that's important for you to know, too. They may be atheists or Catholics or Jews or whatever, and you must take that factor into consideration when deciding what to do in the way of a serious lecture or what to do in the way of a comic uh, address. You must always adapt yourself to your audience. One group of professionals who know this very well are politicians. Even though they have, quote, the speech, end quote, and some of them give one speech more than others, they never give precisely the same speech. There are always a few ingratiating words addressed to the specific moment, the specific audience, and that's as it should be for funny people, too. You also mentioned the five famous words, you had to be there. <laughs> and that is so true. I mean, just all of us have had things that, that we say, my gosh, wait till I hear about this down at the office. And by the time you retell it, it's not even funny to yourself anymore. Some things are funny in the retelling, and others, for whatever mysterious reasons or specific reasons in specific cases, are not funny. Uh, there are people who are masters of that particular mode of comic communication. Uh, James Thurber certainly was. And parenthetically, as you know, having looked at the book, one of the things I recommend for those who want to be funnier is to brainwash themselves, immerse themselves in funniness. Start by reading Thurber, read Benchley, read Woody Allen's comic essays, read S.J. Perlman, or Irma Bombeck or Andy Rooney, whoever you like to laugh at. Just read a lot of that stuff, and that even if you did nothing else at the end of six months of that, you would really be funnier. You'd be thinking funny. You'd be seeing more humor in, in your own life experience. But uh, this is one of the fascinating things about humor and comedy, perform comedy, that you can't be scientific about it, although the rules are such rules as I've been able to think of are given in the book. Even the word rules has quotation marks around it. They're, they're really uh, more like the Ten Suggestions rather than the Ten Commandments. 
And uh, again, the, the very fascination of it is partly for this reason, that around the edges it's a little vague. If there's a particular comedian who I say to myself, gee, I don't like him. His jokes are off color, everything like that. Sure as the world, as soon as I've said that, the next thing that comes out of his mouth, I'll be on the floor. <laughs> Involuntarily, I mean, I know it's a tasteless joke. I probably don't even like it. In Ten minutes from now, I'll say, that was a terrible joke. But i got to laugh. It's kind of involuntary. Yes, there is a sense in which laughter is an involuntary response, uh, not quite as involuntary as uh, closing the eyes to avoid overly bright light or ducking to avoid a blow. There are some things we do very quickly and without involving the will, and laughter is in that category. We don't think a joke over and then 20 minutes later say, okay, I guess I'll laugh at it. The laughter is instantaneous, and you're absolutely right. Sometimes we feel better for having laughed at a given joke. It may have some moral point to it, and then again, it may be vulgar, tasteless, uh, or offensive socially. It may be uh, something that's a slur at some religion or race or political individual, something of that sort, uh, you, you feel a little twinge of guilt, and, and often properly so, at having laughed. But uh, you did laugh. And let's suppose you're the nicest fellow on earth. So then you say, how can I, who am such a wonderful person, <laughs> have laughed at that sick, degraded, depraved joke? Well, there could be lots of reasons. One of the things people have to understand is that if something is morally objectionable, that in itself does not entitle us to say, well, that's not funny because it's a joke about abortion or baseball or whatever the subject matter might be. There is no such thing as a subject matter that is totally off limits to the humorist. Uh, a thing can be in very poor taste and yet funny. So you're laughing at the funny components of it, even though you ought not to have done that, and the person telling it should not have told it. I always feel guilty afterwards. <laughs> Steve Allen died in 2000. He was 78. And you can find easy Amazon links to Steve Allen's books at our website, heardeverything.com. Would you do me a favor? If you like today's episode, would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, we'll be talking indirectly about another very popular talk show host with my 1999 interview with Ellen DeGeneres' mom, Betty DeGeneres. I worried about her well-being. I worried that she wouldn't have a man to take care of her. And I think she has taken care of herself rather well. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.